When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 283, and we are recording on May 25th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot, where I do know how to speak with my mouth. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Can any of us, can any amongst us regularly speak with our mouths? Aren't we just brains in a vat? Yeah. <laughs> Imagining that we are speaking with our mouths. Throwback to my high school philosophy I was class. just going to say how very Descartian of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Everything is just the matrix. I never progressed past that philosophical phase in my life. The matrix. I mean. Anyway. Um, so <laughs> welcome to our unraveling. This is a show about personalized <laughs> reading recommendations. And the way that the show works is you can email us your reading recommendation requests to get booked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form, which is in the show notes on the site. This can be any reading recommendation request for yourself, for a gift, for a book club, whatever your heart desires. If your question is time sensitive, please just put that in the subject line or in big letters in the first line if you're using the form so we can get back to you on time. If we will not get back to you on time, we will email you back, which is why we ask for your email address. Okay, we have a lot of feedback this week. Carol, for the person who is asking for book recommendations before they go to Hawaii, Carol recommends This is Paradise by Christiana Kahala-Kawila. Should be a required reading for anyone traveling to Hawaii, she says. From Laura, recommendation for Diane looking for cat friends, Ober Newton by Isabel Carmody, which is the first in the series, is about Maruman, a cat friend who could communicate with the heroine and some other people. He is scruffy, strange, and grumpy. Those are great. Mine's just my favorite. Um, Suzanne says, for the reader with the project to read a book set in every state, here are a couple from my own project to read a mystery set in every state, which is a great project. Arkansas, a painted house by John Grisham, not really a true mystery because we know who committed the crime. And then Mississippi, Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin takes place in a small town where a current disappearance carries echoes of the unsolved crime from the past. I will co-sign that Mississippi recommendation. Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter is a great book. We have some pronunciation feedback from the question who is asking for books set in Michigan. The island's name is spelled Mackinac and pronounced Mackinac. Mackinac? And I think we said Mackinac. I don't remember what I said, but whatever for we said. For sure we said Mackinac. <laughs> because that's how it's spelled. It gets right. confusing because Fort Mackinac is pronounced with the knack, but for whatever reason, the island is gnaw. So there you go. Sorry for saying that wrong. Mackinac Island. There we go. So we're going to say like a, like a macaw. That's how I will remember it. It's like the parrot. Um, Rachel for, says, for Morellis looking for dog books, I would suggest Can I Be Your Dog by Troy Cummings. It's an adorable picture book where a dog writes letters to humans in the neighborhood looking for a family of his own. Oh, my, oh my goodness. From Rose, I have feedback for Margot for an FF vampire romance. It's called Good Enough to Eat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Good Enough to Eat by Jay and Allison Gray. It's about a vampire who wants to stop drinking blood and meets another paranormal woman at AA. Oh, my gosh. That's adorable. Okay. And from Susan, last one, I actually just wanted to submit a suggestion for the reader who was looking for myth retellings. 
The Library of Legends by Janie Change is historical fiction, but has an element of magical realism when Chinese myths, gods, and goddesses are brought to life and interact with the characters. All right, I'm going to read our first question. We will hear from our first sponsor, and then away we'll go. So our first question is actually from the per- from Suzanne, who uh, submitted the feedback about reading a mystery in every state. And Suzanne's actual question is, can you suggest a mystery set in any of these remaining states that she's struggling with? They are Alabama, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Utah. I'd like to accomplish this using unique authors for each state. So another John Grisham, for example, would not work. Any kind of mystery will do, preferably somewhere in the broad middle between cloyingly cozy and gruesomely gory. I included my list so far for reference. Okay, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Jen, mysteries set in states. Yeah, I decided to answer for Utah because it reminded me about a book that came out a while back but did very well and is definitely in the middle between glowingly cozy and gruesomely (laughs) gory. It's The 19th Wife by David Ebershoff. This does come with content warnings for homophobia for reasons that will quickly become extremely clear. But yes, so this is both, it's a two-timeline book, and it's got historical fiction as well as a modern murder mystery. 
So the historical part is set in 1875 and is about one of the wives of Brigham Young. There's like disagreements about the 19thness of her, but anyway, she's theoretically the 19th wife of Brigham Young, based on a real person. This is like all based on real stuff. Uh, And she was expelled from the church because of her crusade to end polygamy in the United States. So you get to find out all like her story and, you know, what brought her to marry Brigham Young and then to separate from him and, you know, go on this crusade. And then you get this modern day story that, surprise, involves a polygamist family in uh, modern day Utah. They're part of the fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which is separate from the main Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. Uh, And the character here is Jordan, who is young and was thrown out of the sect earlier, which like actually happens quite a lot. There's this whole thing of lost boys in Utah. Real thing. I lived in Utah for a little while. And so he and he is gay and he is like not eager to interact with that world. But his father has died and they're saying that perhaps his mother murdered him. And so he is trying to figure out like what actually happened here. So you get these two different storylines sort of weaving together in interesting ways. And you get this look at, you know, this very intense and like rich history of the Mormon church in Utah. Like you're just getting a lot of different things. Uh, So again, that is The 19th Wife by David Ebershoff. Okay, I went with Alabama and I picked The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins, which is a newish mystery that came out earlier this year, I think in January, uh, and is a retelling, is a modern Southern Gothic retelling of Jane Eyre. So Jane is the titular character. She lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She's young. She's broke. She's a dog walker in Thornfield Estates, which is this very bougie suburban uh, neighborhood set outside of Birmingham. Lots of McMansions, lots of bored housewives, that sort of thing. And so Jane is the dog walker there, but she's also like a petty thief, (laughs) like stealing tchotchkes and pieces of jewelry that nobody's going to notice and all of that. And then she has a very mysterious past that you learn more about as the book goes. She meets Eddie, who is a um, recent widow and a mysterious, attractive, wealthy man at that, living in Thornfield Estates. He almost runs her over with his car, which, you know, is how you want all your relationships to start. Um, Almost runs her over with his car and then invites her in for coffee. And Jane recognizes a mark when she sees one. You know, his wife died recently. He is lonely. She is young and conniving and wants his dollar, dollar bills. So they embark on this relationship. And it is mostly at first her difficulty is like, She's obviously much younger than him. She looks like a gold digger because she is a gold digger and all the women in the neighborhood treat her like a gold digger. So she's trying to like ingratiate herself with these women and try to fit in and become part of this world so she doesn't lose it. But the more that she does that, the more she realizes that Eddie is like weird. Like there's something going on there that doesn't add up. Um, he has He's got really bad mood swings. Um, he has an obviously a really bad temper. And then the story about how his wife died starts to make less and less sense and then the cops find a body and everything just falls apart so if you have read Jane Eyre you will probably pick up pretty quickly on what is going on and like 
you know, what happened to his wife and all of that. If you have not read Jane Eyre, all of this will maybe be a little bit shocking. But it's a it's a great retelling. I will read almost any Jane retelling of Jane Eyre because it's one of my favorite books. And this one was very satisfying and very Southern. So that's The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins. All right. Our next question is from Sarah, who says, what are your favorite books set in Mexico? I just read Gods of Jade and Shadow and I loved it. And then I read Mexican Gothic, which I also loved up until the point where it made me gag so much quick. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. reading Silvia Moreno-Garcia has really piqued my interest in Mexico as a setting, and I'd love some recommendations for further reading. Welcome! Welcome! It's a good space to be in, the Silvia Moreno-Garcia fan club. Mm-hmm. I picked a—it's like more on the magical realism side of fiction for you. It's The Hummingbird's Daughter by Luis Alberto Urea. And this one comes with content warnings for rape and child abuse. It is a little rough in spots. Uh, But this is an amazing novel. It is actually also based on an actual person from Urea's own family. It's set in late 1800s in Mexico, right before the Civil War starts. And the main character, Teresita, is the illegitimate daughter of a very powerful rancher. And she... Like, the theory is she's coming back from the dead. Like, she experienced horrible violence and comes back from it with what seem to be powers and becomes, like, this linchpin in the revolutionary situation. And Ure is such a good writer. Like, oh, geez, he's so good. Um, there's this really chewy sentences and beautiful scenery and amazing characters. And I just think he's fantastic. And I think this will definitely, if you end up liking it, there are a lot of more books by him that are also really, really good. So new author to add to your list. So again, that's The Hummingbird's Daughter by Luis Alberto Urea. I picked Kingdom Cons by Yuri Herrera. It's translated by Lisa Dillman. And I picked this one. I love everything I've read by Yuri Herrera. All of his books are um, come from in other press or in other stories, which is a great small press. And they're all pretty small. Like this one, I think, is about 150 pages. And I picked this one out of all of them. They're all set in Mexico because it is the most uh, genre bending. Like, you know, Mexican Gothic obviously is gothic on top of being historical fiction and has some mystery elements and like a little bit of potential magical realism you know you got to figure out kind of what's going on in that book and kingdom cons is very much like a fable combined with oh i don't even know what i would combine it with it's like a shakespearean macbeth but in mexico and about a drug lord kind of so it's about a a man called the artist everyone in this book is given titles instead of names so the drug lord is called the the king i think and then like his son is called the heir and his wife is called, I don't remember, the witch, I think maybe. Anyway, um, and so the artist is this young man who was living in poverty and was homeless on the streets of the town where the drug lord lived. And the drug lord takes him in to be his like bard, you know, like he sings him songs, he sings him folk songs, he tells him stories and things like that and saves him really from a life of poverty. And it's through the eyes of this kind of court jester kind of character that we see what's going on in this house where this really powerful and violent man lives and all of the family drama that unfolds. And of course, because nobody has a name, that's kind of what gives it this fable-like quality. But what's so fascinating about this book is that Yuri Herrera refused to use certain words when he was writing it. Like, he doesn't ever say the word border, and he never says the word drugs. Hmm. So you kind of have to... Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious from the jump what's going on here, but the the other languages, or the other words that he chooses in place of those words, and the, and the translation that has to kind of keep up with that, is really, really brilliant. 
And so I, I don't know. I just everything that he writes has kind of an otherworldly, but also very grounded quality at the same time. And yeah, he's a beloved author from Mexico. I just love him so much. So that's Kingdom Cons by Yuri Herrera and translated by Lisa Dillman. All right. Question three is from Carol, who says, for me, COVID art has been a really helpful way to cope in the last year, whether it be music, TV, or written works that deal with pandemic realities head on. Because I work in the restaurant industry, I experienced only a very short quarantine period before being back in the world. And I think I appreciate the aspect of getting on with life in the face of the ongoing trauma and fear and still finding plenty of joy in small moments. Um, The only book I found dealing directly with COVID, aside from specifically scientific stuff, which I'm less interested in, is Intimations by Zadie Smith. What else is out there? Okay, John, what you got? All right. I have a YA anthology for you. It is like they're just all these really sweet sort of bites of love stories set during lockdown. And like this is, I mean, it's YA. They're about teenagers but having like teenagery feelings and problems, <laughs> um, some of which are more like a little more serious than others. But like I said, these are all very sweet bites. Like they're very heartwarming and wholesome. There is actually one of these stories is set in a Chinese restaurant. So I was like, oh, you might especially like that one. Uh, It's just like, I don't know. I like don't know how else to say it. Like, they're just very fun. But I did appreciate seeing, you know, the different ways that the characters are approaching their lockdown experiences. Everybody's having like different feelings about it. And while mostly it's like, you know, they're stuck at home with their families in small spaces, not so much interacting with the world. There are a couple that deal more with, yeah, like what it's like to have like a parent or to be like, yes, still have to do the restaurant and have double mask. How do I take orders over the phone? Like, you know, these details that it sounds like you're appreciating. So it's like it will give you cozy feelings, but also it it is directly about what it's like to be in lockdown. So, you know, go forth. Uh, so again, that's Together Apart. And it is edited by, I think, Aaron Craig. It's hard to tell. There, it's, uh, The editor is not listed on my listing. There are quite a few contributing authors. The one that has the Chinese restaurant is by Jennifer Yen. All right. I picked The Premonition by Michael Lewis. And this is not fiction. This is narrative nonfiction. That is on my hold list at the library. I am perhaps unsurprisingly like number 200 <laughs> for this one. And Michael Lewis is, you know, best known for writing like Moneyball and The Big Short, which had newfound fame earlier in the year when all the short selling was happening in the stock market. But he's very well known for his investigative narrative nonfiction. And this is about the American handling of the pandemic. And surprisingly, you know, I heard an interview with him um, on Ezra Klein's podcast. Ezra Klein is a New York Times uh, opinion columnist. And he was talking about this book, which is why I put it on my hold list. And the like villain, if there is one in this in this book, is not necessarily the Trump administration, though it is, of course, a good bit about the Trump administration. But it's actually the CDC. And the way that he is really ripping the CDC a new one is the thing that I am most interested in here. Because I don't know, it took me a minute, actually, like maybe a week to put this book on hold after I heard the podcast about it, because I was like, am I ready to like be mad again Mm. (laughs) about this? Mm. Because I'm everyone, right, was just so angry. I was so angry at the way that the Trump administration was handling the pandemic for the majority of last year, really until he left office, like until January, I was so angry. And then somebody competent took over. But I actually like was not paying too terribly much attention to what the CDC was doing before that. 
because how could we like they're not in the public eye until mm. March. I didn't you know, until the CDC declared that a pandemic was happening. I didn't know anything about what they were doing. So this is really a behind the scenes look at like how the CDC got to handling it in the way that it did and all of the big major fumbles that they had, like not letting private companies develop tests at the beginning, which I don't rem- I have no memory of that whatsoever. Mm. But now in retrospect, I'm like, of course, that's a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> let people get as many tests as possible as fast as possible. And I don't say that to say that, like, the Trump administration gets off scot-free in this book. They are very much to blame, and that blame is heartily heaped upon their heads. But the CDC being kind of the big organization, I mean, this is their only job, right? You have one job. It's this. Mm. And the the ways that they dropped the ball, I think I am ready to be mad about that because it's a new <laughs> mad. It's not just being mad at Donald Trump or Mike Pence, who was supposed to be heading up this effort. It's being mad at the people whose job this was long before Trump ever took office and who just completely whiffed. So yeah, so go with God. Be ready to be mad with me. That's The Premonition by Michael Lewis. <laughs> All right. Our next question is from Heather, who says, I'm looking for a recommendation for two very different subgenres of thriller. I recently read City of the Lost by Kelly Armstrong, and it reminded me a little bit of The Blinds by Adam Sternberg. I wondered if you know of any other books like this, remote town cut off from the rest of the world, groups of people living there who have to be self-sufficient but all have lots of secrets and a murder happens. I also recently read One by One by Ruth Ware, and I wasn't a fan. I'm not looking for stranded people as much as a group that chose to go live remotely and cut off from the world. Second, I'm currently reading The Seven Doors by Agnes Ravitan, and I really like the Scandinavian setting. I also love the is there something supernatural or is this just a thriller element? The other book I loved similar to this was I Remember You, A Ghost Story by Yursa Sigurdotter. This also had the remote Scandinavian setting with the maybe supernatural something happening. Any help in these two areas would be awesome. I'm picking The Blue Fox by Sion, translated by Victoria Cribb, because as soon as I read this question, I was like, oh, I know the book. (laughs) Because it is, it is, it's a little less mystery than it is, like, is something supernatural happening here? But it's, it is also a little bit of a mystery. It's set in, like, the 1800s. It moves around a little bit in time and space in very strange ways. There is a priest who is hunting for this, like, enigmatic, hard-to-find blue fox. And then there's this naturalist, Friedrich, who has a—he's the guardian of a girl, Abba, who has Down syndrome um, and who also, like, has rescued him in the past. And then there's a shipwreck. And, like, all of these different things are happening. And you're, you're basically trying to figure out how do they all fit together and what is up with this fox. And it <laughs> is so— atmospheric and it is so sort of head scratchery sometimes but you're like you don't care because you're in it you're just like yeah I have no idea what's going on (laughs) and I am really enjoying the experience (laughs) like that's that's the best way I can find to describe the experience of reading this book and it sounds like that's what you're looking for also small note this book has a Bjork blurb on the cover, which just like every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that's right. That's so cool. Uh, So, you know, that's the kind of book it is. Bjork blurbed it. So again, that's The Blue Fox by Sion, translated by Victoria Cribb. What do you think Bjork's life is like? Like daily life? I can't even imagine, but I bet it's awesome. Yes, same. I hope it's awesome. 
<laughs> okay, so I picked something that was based on the first part of the question about, you know, the remote town cut off from the rest of the world murder secrets. But it also has a bit of the second one. It takes place in a very cold climate and there is a, is this something supernatural or is this just a thriller thing going on? So it's called The Winter People. It's by Jennifer McMahon. It takes place in Vermont, in West Hall, Vermont, which is a tiny, tiny town that has always had a lot of like weird disappearance. Oh, trigger warning for harm to children. Weird disappearances specifically of children. Also, people who wander off into the woods seem to never come back. There's lots of legends. Is it haunted? Etc. And this goes back to 1908 when a woman named Sarah Shea yeah, was found dead in the field behind her house a few months after her daughter dies. Now, in the present day, Ruthie lives in Sarah's farm- farmhouse. She's 19. She lives there with her mother, Alice, and her younger sister, who's a little creepy in that way that like Little kids in thrillers are often very creepy. <laughs> so this is a creepy kid. And then one day, Ruthie wakes up and discovers that Alice is just gone. And their house has always been off the grid. They've always lived off grid. They kind of keep to themselves. Alice has just walked into the woods and disappeared. So Ruthie is left alone in this creepy farmhouse with her creepy little sister. And like, she's no phone, no electricity. You know, they're off the grid. She Food that no one's been to the grocery store in a minute. So she has like no idea what's going on. So she starts searching for any clue about where her mother is gone. And she finds Sarah Shea's diary hidden in the floorboards of her mother's bedroom. And a lot of stuff about her mother's bedroom, now that she's looking at it, is a little weird. Like the closet has a lock on it from the outside. Like, why would you need to lock something in your closet? Like, that's not, that's not normal. And then she starts reading the diary and the diary gets increasingly weirder and weirder and she eventually finds herself in the woods actually looking for her mother so it's is her mom dead like it's the middle of nowhere it's cold is her house haunted is her mom a ghost is she a ghost? you know like it's just what is happening here it's very very creepy and i read it in like december and it was no ma'am i'm a weenie and that was a no ma'am for me <laughs> just a no ma'am um so that's the winter people by jennifer mcmahon go with god on that one and it is time for our next sponsor Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidize family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode today's episode is brought to you by thirsty by jazz hammonds college student blake and her girlfriend have one goal join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color now ella's acceptance is a sure thing she's a daughter of a serena society alum after all blake on the other hand lacks ella's pedigree and her confidence luckily though really unluckily she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle 
When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. All right. Question five is from Grace, who says, I would love a recommendation on rotten food. I'm not talking about the Netflix show. I would love it if it had a variety of foods that as human beings we eat that are disturbing to others, but as a culture is acceptable. For instance, where did we get the idea of cheese and how it was safe to eat? Or how did balut become a delicacy? Or even monkey's brains? I want to find a book on all these fascinating foods and how they came to be introduced into a culture as well as an acceptable food for all cultures. Okay, first of all, I just need to aside. Balut is not acceptable in any culture. It's gross. It's gross and I hate it. And I just need to, to say that out loud. So bad. Gives me like, ugh, like chills. Okay, so um, I'm going to keep going. I picked Cheese and Culture for this. The subtitle is A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. It's by Paul Kinstead. And this is fascinating. It starts in like the Neolithic era, which is apparently when we invented cheese like 9,000 years ago. And it is like seriously trying to solve that mystery. Like how did, who was the first person who was like moldy milk into it, you know? <laughs> or like, I know how to preserve that. How? Who came up with that? We apparently have some good evidence of how we came to arrive at the idea. So he starts at the very, the very beginning, you know, the history of cheese. And then kind of winds his way through human prehistory, classical history, medieval renaissance, and then the modern era, and like how cheese spread through different cultures, how it became accepted as like a thing to eat, how it uh, in some cases became, went from being like kind of peasant food to being something very fancy and expensive. And he also points out, which I think is really important, that cheese making was very much women's work until capitalism was invented and money could be made from it. And then it became a dude thing. Like women historically since the Neolithic era, apparently, have been the ones to make cheese. Uh, and then now you think about like really wealthy, fancy cheesemongers and they're all men. So that's always, I think, important to point out that like domestic chores are domestic chores until they make money and then they're not anymore. Um, and so, yeah, just how cheese became what it is and how it started. So that's Cheese and Culture by Paul Kinstead. I picked for you a book that's on my library hold list about one of the topics I find most interesting about food. It's Edible, An Adventure into the World of Eating Insects and the Last Great Hope to Save the Planet by Daniela Martin. And this is so interesting to me on so many levels. I remember when, I think it was The Economist, did this whole piece, it might even have been an excerpt from this, about how, like, literally, if we would all just eat insects... We would mm. not have a global food shortage. Like, done. We're done. Mm. there. And how, like, they're a great source of protein. And, like, there's just all these reasons why insects can save us all. And there was, no lie, when I was living in Brooklyn at the time, a ice cream truck that partnered with The Economist. And you could get ice cream with, like, crickets on top. Or yeah. they had, like, a bunch of different <clears throat> insect toppings. And the line was around the block. I'm not even kidding. Like, it was the most interesting 
thing. I mean, it was fascinating. It was so fascinating. And this is what Daniela Martin is going into. She's talking about, like, who is currently experimenting in the Western world with this? Because this is not abnormal other places. Mm -hmm. But in the Western world, right, like in America in particular, like, I'm not eating insects on the regular. It's not a thing. Certainly not while I'm awake, anyway. (laughs) And so so she's talking about, like, okay, so, like, there's a food cart in San Francisco that has moth larva tacos. Like, how are they doing? And then, but then you go to, like, Thailand, and there's insects in the frozen food aisle. And, you know, there's a bug eating club in Tokyo. And like, what's up with insects as food? And, you know, she goes into the history of how indigenous diets from around the world have incorporated insects from the jump because, again, like great source of protein, easily available. Why the heck not? So like, how did we get to this part where like, we think that's gross? And how do we get back to a place where we can incorporate these into our diets and, like, get over whatever these weird cultural biases we have about them? Super interesting. So interesting. Also, there are recipes. There's instructions on how to raise bugs at home. Like, it's like, how deep do you want to dive into this? Like, Danielle Martin is going to, like, give you some primers. So cool. So interesting. I, I, like, don't know, again, how I feel about it. But I really can't wait to read this book and, like, get my mind blown. So, again, that's Edible by Daniela Martin. (laughs) There's um, the Brood X cicada situation Uh happening in Virginia right now in Northern Virginia you know every 17 years they like emerge from the ground and there are a bunch of people in the Virginia Reddit who were like cooking them up cool like deep frying them in their in their fancy air fryers well I guess those are two different things but like air frying the cicadas and I was like that's amazing that is super cool and I could you make like make some comeback sauce and just kind of dip those I need that Here's a side note, thing I don't understand about cicadas. Somebody recommended me a book on cicadas. There were cicadas in West Philly since I've moved here, which was less than five years ago. So I don't understand this every 17 years thing. Like, I have seen cicadas more in, more recently. It's like a specific, as far, my understanding is that it's a specific subspecies that only does the every 17 years thing. And oh. they're so... They're so loud. And like I've seen, you know, some videos on Instagram of some friends who live in Northern Virginia and around the Maryland area. And they are just like, it's like, it looks like a plague of locusts. Like they're just Mm. carpeting the sidewalks. You crunch when you walk. Right. So it's not the the every summer kind of cicada. Because I have the same thing. Like I can hear them right now. You know, um, it's like a specific kind. But I don't know. I don't know what kind. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll (laughs) moving on from bugs, I guess. (laughs) I could talk about that for a while. Uh, Our next question is from Passant, who says, I recently finished reading Mem by Bethany C. Morrow and really loved it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. What I loved about it is how it discusses the importance of memories, regardless of how bad they may seem. Mixed with the sci-fi alternate history elements and the amazing writing, this book is just everything I ever needed. Do you have any book recs with similar vibes slash themes? Please only fiction and preferably under 350 pages. I am just going to keep talking. So I love Mem by Bethany Morrow. Mm -hmm. That's a great book. It is sort of singular to me in Mm -hmm. that I really could not think of another book that does exactly what Morrow is doing, which is like part of why it's so good, right? But when I was thinking about it, I thought of The Chimes by Anna Smale, which I think also is singular in the way that it approaches messing with this idea about memory and how it shapes us and what would it look like if memory worked very differently in sort of a sci-fi way. 
So I'm giving you that as my pick. Chimes is set in a London that feels sort of oldie time, but like you start to discover might be like future time, like a question mark, unclear. Mm-hmm. And people cannot form new memories. Like you just every day, basically, you don't know anything about your life. You just are. You wake up and you're like, well, here we go again. And some people have figured out how to like attach some memories to physical objects. But there's no writing. Nobody knows how to write. There's no such thing as the written word. So you can't, you know, like leave yourself a note to remind yourself about things. That's just not a thing. Instead, everything is sort of governed by music. Like, you know what time of day it is by the bells and all of your sort of metaphors for how the world works are in musical terms. It's fascinating the way you can tell that smell has, you know, musical training. But I will say I know like just a little bit about musical notation and language and it it was fine. Like the book, you know, you don't have to be like an orchestra conductor to understand what's going on in this book. You'll be fine. Just go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the main character, Simon, is like a teenager, is the implication. And his parents have died. He arrives in London because he's he sort of has like this feeling that he has to get to London for reasons, but he doesn't know what those reasons are because he can't make memories. Um, but then he starts, he like falls in with this group of young kids who are like, you know, sort of living on the waterfront, scavenging and stealing like you do. And he starts to discover like there are things going on that maybe are going to change the whole world. Also like you do. It's so well done. And I just think the way that memory works in this book is so fascinating. And I haven't seen anybody do again quite like it. And that's what's so great about them. So I think they are an interesting pairing. Uh, So again, that's The Chimes by Anna Smale. I wanted to give a shout out to The Deep, Mm -hmm. uh, which we talked about last week, which is also about memory, collective memory and uh, trauma and had mermaids. But that's fantasy and not science fiction. So I'm just going to... you know, hang a little lantern on that book. And my actual recommendation for you is Riot Baby by Tochi Onyabuchi. And that is pretty short. It's under 350. It's I think it's like 108 pages. It's science fiction. It's not alternate history, but it is kind of an alternate dystopia future a little bit. So this is about a brother and sister, Kev and Ella. Kev is born during the Rodney King protests in LA, hence the name Riot Baby. And he spends his young adulthood trying to avoid being killed or arrested for being black. And he fails. He is arrested for being black and is put in jail. And Ella, his sister, visits him, but not in like a normal way. (laughs) She has many, many superpowers. She calls it her thing. And every time you are like go back to her perspective she's gained a new one so like she has telekinesis she can make herself invisible she can fly like she's got all of these bonkers superpowers and so she visits kevin jail like telepathically is that the word i'm looking for yeah or like will port her body into the cell to like talk to him and she has one of her powers is the ability to see somebody's past and future and she's doing something very similar to um what the mermaids are doing in the deep where she is kind of as she gets older, collecting these, she's like holding this collective trauma of the people around her, of her friends and family who have been oppressed and marginalized and arrested and killed for being black. And she also sees their futures and sees how that can unfold to be either worse or better. And so it actually, I mean, it sounds quite like heavy and sad, and it is, but it also has a kind of hopeful note. Um, And this is what I mean by it's not an alternate history, it's like an alternate future where she, her and her brother are envisioning how they can use her powers 
and what it means for like what is coming in the future for them individually and for the community of black Americans in general. So it's a lot packed into like less than 200 pages, which I feel like Mem is also quite a bit packed into 200, uh, less than 200 pages. So yeah, so that's Riot Baby by Tochi Onibuchi. Our last question is from Alexis, who says, I'm looking for some book recommendations about marriages that are struggling in a fictional setting. Struggles that are not related to affairs or already at divorce's door. I want to see the internal dialogue or conflict and how two people navigate a marriage that's not full of love anymore and can hopefully come back from that. Okay, Jen, what you got? This is a tough one. Mm. It's particularly when you're trying not to have anything that has an affair in it. Like that is really narrows it down. Uh, but I have one for you. It is <laughs> Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee. I will give a content warning for the death of a child because it is very important to the plot. And if you do not want to hear about that, I am going to talk about it. So that being said, so this book is such an interesting and odd read, which is par for the course for Chang Ray Lee, right? Like that's what he does. It's really good <laughs> at it. Henry Park, the main character, is the child of Korean immigrants, and his father uh, owns, you know, like grocery store bodegas in New York and, you know, has come from being like a very small time to being successful within Henry's lifetime. And they have a very complicated relationship. Um, His mother died at a certain point in his childhood, and like that also was rough. And he is actually sort of like a corporate spy in that he spies for people who pay the organization he works for money, not like for the government, but just like for whoever. So it seems a little bit like thrillery in that regard. And he's got this new assignment. There's this, you know, young or up and coming, rather not young, but up and coming politician in New York who's also Asian American. And he gets assigned to like try to dig up some dirt on this guy. In the meantime, the whole book really is centered around his relationship with his wife and they're trying to move on from their child's death. They had a son and he died and it was very sad and it has really wrecked them. And at the start of the book, they're like sort of separated, but sort of not. And that sort of that continues throughout the book. But the way they orbit around each other, it's very clear that they can't just let each other go as hard as it is for them to also be around each other. Like it just it's really rough there and really complicated and tangled their relationship. And the way that that evolves over the course of the book is really, really well done. It's not like cozy. It's not easy. It's not smooth. And like sometimes you're just like, wow, I just don't know if you two should end up back together. (laughs) Like, I'm just not sure. But the way that they make peace with each other and their history is is really well done. It's so good. And also there's so much other elder, you know, things that are part of it. Like his wife is American. She's white. You know, there's all kinds of like cultural baggage that Henry is dealing with on top of, you know, these very difficult things that have happened to him. So it's just it's just a really intense character study is what this book is. And if you really want to dig into how complicated a relationship between two people can get, like, have at it. This is that is what this book does. So again, that's Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee. So there is like a subgenre of romance about this that mm-hmm. about married couples who now hate each other and are like trying to come back from that. And so that's what I went with. I picked the Bromance Book Club by Lissa K. Adams. Um, it's a modern romance. And so, you know, contemporary times. 
It's about a baseman, a professional baseball player named Gavin and his wife, Thea. And they are kind of recently married. I think they'd only been married for about three years. They have twin girls. Um, they got married when she found out that she was pregnant. And uh, Thea gave up her career, really. Well, she hadn't started her career, but her dreams of being like, a, I think it was an artist in order to be a mom uh, and support Gavin in his professional baseball career. And then, so the whole conceit of this like big conflict in this novel is that Gavin finds out that Thea is faking it in bed. And he gets so angry that he leaves and is like, this is done. I like, I cannot believe you've been lying to me about this, which is such a boneheaded response to that. Instead of like staying and trying to figure out why she feels the need to do that, he bounces. And she, of course, is like, well, screw you then, you know, <laughs> like, fine, whatever. Like, I've given up everything that I loved in order to, you know, care for your children and support your career. And like, you don't even have, you know, the curiosity to ask me about where this is all coming from. And so their marriage is very troubled on what sounds like a pretty goofy premise, but actually is like that thing is hiding a lot of turmoil and strife that they have under the surface. And so Gavin realizes that he's like made a big boneheaded move, um, that him storming out was the exact wrong thing to do that he loves his wife and like does not want to get uh, a divorce or split up over something so kind of silly and so he goes to his friends and is like you know you all guys they're all of his dude friends are very happily uh, partnered or married and so he asks them for their advice and they invite him to their secret book club and at first he's like this is what <laughs> like this does this is not helpful what i'm asking is for you to tell me what to do and they're like no no no, no. this is what you do so he goes to their book club and it turns out that their book club is all about reading romance novels as a way to figure out how to make good when they mess up <laughs> with their romantic partners. And I love that so much because, you know, most straight cisgendered men aren't really taught how to be emotionally vulnerable and, you know, clearly communicate their needs and clearly understand the needs of their partners because our society is designed to not teach them that because patriarchy. So this is the way that they've come, they figured out to get around it is they read romance novels written by women, a genre that's mostly by and about and for women, um, to try and figure out how to be better at, at being married. And he is very resistant at first, but then he gets into it. I love that like every member of this book club is like a very alpha-y kind of dude. Like they're all very high-powered CEOs and athletes and politicians. And, and the thing that they do in their spare time is read Regency romance and talk about feelings. And it's just so nice. It's just nice. So that's The Bromance Book Club by Lisa K. Adams. I think that's it. That's our show. We Hooray! did it. Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you all so much for listening. You can find more book recommendations at bookriot.com and find all of our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, thank you to our sponsors. And you can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Mostly doing pistol squats now. That's what I did. So <laughs> <are> you, Jen? <laughs> Workouts and dogs, Amanda's brand. Yep. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's, IRL. And you can find me on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I A M J E N N I R L. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.